to its cage. Part of their concern was with what they called the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young. Uh, that includes the churches, the schools, and the universities. Uh, and they were getting out of control. Uh, and that means we got a crisis of democracy. Uh, they made a distinction there between what they called the technocratic and policy-oriented intellectuals and the value-oriented intellectuals. The technocratic and policy-oriented intellectuals are the good guys. They're the ones who serve the interests of power. Uh, they're the commissars. The value-oriented intellectuals are the bad guys. Uh, they're the ones who are threatening the institutions that are responsible for the indoctrination of the young and getting people agitated and making them think about values and so on and so forth. One of their attempts, one of their concerns was how to control and get rid of these value-oriented intellectuals who were sort of getting in the way of the governability of democracy. Welcome to another episode of Club Manifesto. Uh, got a real barn burner for all of you today. <laughs> uh, Sosa and I are going to, uh, we're going to dish about a real a legend, a uh, personal <laughs> hero uh, for Sosa and myself, a guy who's, uh, uh, who, who sincerely is, is a real trailblazer in the realm of leftist politics, world-renowned expert in linguistics. Uh, a guy who coincidentally uh, really fucking loves to talk, um, and who brings his own uh, sort of remarkably uh, brilliant as well as monotonal approach to <laughs> every speech he gives. Uh, a guy who is uh, so brilliant you're tempted to forget that his name appears once or twice on the Epstein flight logs. Um, <laughs> Hang on, what? <laughs> We're talking, of course, about MIT Professor Emeritus Noam Chomsky. Uh, nice. And today we are going to talk about Chomsky's essay, the one that really put him on the map back in the day, back in the mid-60s, titled, uh, quote, The Responsibility of Intellectuals. Uh, and in that essay, Chomsky describes how his own group, um, that would be intellectuals in the United States... Um, are so obsequious to power that they essentially voluntarily helped to justify uh, the Vietnam War. Um, how they provided uh, pseudo-scientific justifications for that imperial adventure. Um, and and uh, what a great job they did, Joe, because uh, when everyone thinks back on the Vietnam War, they think, what a great justified event that was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... So what's important is not the the long term, uh, you know, vision or the long term reputation of the intellectual mm. work. You know, we're gonna get into this. Don't get don't mm -hmm. get too far ahead here. You know, sorry, um, sorry. You know, 
This uh, this essay was published back in uh, 1967 in February. So yeah, so there's been a lot of time for shit to happen for you to look back and <laughs> critique it now. Um, it was pu- published in the New York Review of Books, like I said, in 67. And a uh, quick uh, editorial note from uh, the writers of here at Club Manifesto, the writers' room. Um, much like our last episode, um, our most recent episode, this is another where we're kind of shoehorning in the word manifesto because Chomsky does not describe this as a manifesto, uh, but we use that word anyway because he is laying out, I think, an, an overarching view of how a significant part of the world works and how the actors in uh, that part of the world are essentially fucked up. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, he lays out how to move forward on a path that might be less fucked up. Um, and so it is a manifesto in that way. Um, I think the truth is Chomsky is that rare, very, very rare individual who's probably crafted and published dozens of manifestos over the last few decades. Um, but this was really his first widely acknowledged piece of published work first widely acknowledged manifesto, you might say. Um, And so for that reason, we thought, you know, this particular essay was important to discuss, uh, especially because it does establish some themes that, you know, for those of you familiar with Chomsky, you'll you'll note that he further developed in the later stages of his uh, of his career. Yeah, Noam Chomsky's influence on left politics and American politics in general can't be overstated. Uh, Joe, maybe this is a good time to say a word about what Noam Chomsky meant to us uh, in our own political development uh, as we were, you know, budding young intellectuals ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I certainly, I think like many people probably was exposed to Noam Chomsky maybe first by watching Democracy Now! I probably, I'm sure I'd maybe heard of him or something before, but... Uh, there, uh, for a while, he and Amy Goodman were real great buds. I'm sure they still are. Um, actually, uh, I believe, a little piece of Chomsky trivia before we even get into the biography, um, a piece, a great piece of Chomsky trivia is that he attended, uh, some type of, uh, Jewish summer camp with Mm. Amy Goodman's dad, and allegedly bit Amy uh, Amy Goodman's dad during one of these summer camps, <laughs> uh, which I, I heard uh, Russell Brand, the famed, uh, somewhat controversial uh, Russell Brand, as uh, you know, he, Noam Chomsky, he he uh, you oh. know, put the brought that joke out. Anyway, so it's a long I way of saying it. that. It's a long <laughs> way of saying. I, uh, I heard him on Democracy Now! certainly had a big effect on me uh, based on his views on uh, the Iraq War, the F- war in Afghanistan, a lot of other uh, U.S. Uh, adventures. Um, and then after that, the dude just continued to do, you know, interview after interview with, like, every independent YouTuber slash, like... Uh, you know, independent media website. You know, he was just somebody who really uh, would kind of talk to anyone. So I feel like I, I saw him interviewed oftentimes just like by some fucking 
20 year old dude uh in his mom's basement or whatever who's like uh asking him questions and chomsky would just do an hour and a half interview with some random dude with like 300 uh youtube subscribers um but then also you know i think because i was in media i i read manufacturing consent at a certain point i think in college or shortly thereafter and uh it had a very large impact on me and my uh views about the media industry was you know i i was conflicted when i was in college i was very conflicted about this desire to be a participant in media because of the influence i knew it could have uh but also really cynical about the role of media in the united states and chomsky is you know, was no help in making me feel any better about the American media because in manufacturing consent, they're basically laying out the propagandistic function of media in the U.S. But I think it, gaining the insight that uh, that uh, he kind of brought in that book, it did make me feel like my eyes were a little bit more open uh, to the fucked up stuff uh, I could get involved with if I went the wrong way in American media. Uh, and, and so I think it, it made it more, um, possible for me to continue, uh, feeling okay in some ways about doing certain things and, and also made it possible for me to feel a lot worse about doing other things, um, that I had to do as a reporter. Um, and I, I also just recall how much many of my older, uh, co-workers really fucking had no use for Noam Chomsky because they <laughs> they all felt like his you know that he, that he was calling them propagandists and they took that personally which I, I felt like was the wrong way to look at it um, but I, mm. I do recall that being a bit of a, a point of discussion occasionally in uh, mm. newsrooms yeah um, Chomsky for me um, I I don't know exactly where I heard about him first but it was when i was an undergraduate probably you know talking about lyndon larouche or something like that <laughs> because lyndon larouche booths were everywhere when i was an undergraduate and um i really got into watching his lectures on on youtube uh when i was an undergrad but also in graduate school that's when it really took off like uh 2007 2008 uh, I didn't have access to anyone else saying the kinds of things Chomsky was saying. I didn't, uh, and he was a kind of uh, breath of fresh air for, for me uh, to make sense of like U.S. politics. It didn't have that layer of bullshit that CNN or MSNBC had. You know, I was like, man, mm -hmm. he's really telling it like it is. <laughs> and his style of uh, uh, critique was like really compelling to me, and I couldn't get enough of it. And now we have a very vibrant and varied left media culture. But at that time, for me anyway, it was only Chomsky. And and like you said, NPR and Amy Goodman, but that was like, that was news. Chomsky was analysis, you know? Uh, well, yeah, I, I just mean because Chomsky was a regular guest on, on Amy Goodman. Right. Which, which is by just a clarify it's not uh, aff affiliated with npr because npr is the you know the liberal uh, uh yeah mainstream uh, shitheads whereas uh, amy goodman's a part of the uh 
community media. Yes. Yeah. No, I didn't mean to uh, lump them uh, too much together. I'm just uh, we're on a Noam Chomsky episode. I can't let you uh, confuse uh, <laughs> the lamestream media for uh, for well, democracy now. W- one of the one of the things um, with Chomsky when I, I remember he was so old back then. I was like, he's gonna die any day <laughs> now. Back in 2007, and I wondered who would uh, be the critical voice in the media when when he left because he mm-hmm. he was like the only guy out there mm-hmm. and um uh, of course there was amy goodman and and the people on K- kpfk but uh chomsky held a special place uh for me and uh here we are in 2023 and he's still going strong it was just on tv the other day <laughs> yeah well yeah the there's no there's no heir to Chomsky because he's just never gonna die. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know who you would say it would be. I think uh, I think uh, Finkelstein is waiting in the wings, but I'm not sure anybody's ready to usher him onto the stage. Yeah, he's got one foot in the grave himself. <laughs> uh, I don't. He looks pretty spry to me for a seventy year old. Anyway, this isn't a Norman Finkelstein fucking episode. Um, let's get into, uh, Noam Chomsky's biography, um, which is, uh, probably more familiar to the average, uh, listener here than the biographies of most of the authors that we have profiled on this, uh, on this show. But, you know, to understand the significance of this particular manifesto, I think it's probably worth discussing some details about his life. Um, so we'll, we'll dig into those. Um, he was born on December the 7th, 1928 in Philadelphia, so uh, that, you know, puts him at, I believe, 94 years old, coming up on 95 for Gnome, and he's still uh, still doing interviews, still uh, generating a little bit of controversy, still getting called out for, uh, uh, like I said, being on the Epstein uh, flight logs or <laughs> borrowing money from him or some shit. Um, well, so, uh, as he said, it was uh, none of anyone's business. None of anybody's <laughs> business. Yeah, he's de- at 94 years old, not giving a shit about uh, whether anyone cares what uh, he did with Jeffrey Epstein. Um, so Chomsky's parents were Jewish immigrants to the United States. Uh, his mother, whose name was Elsie Simonovsky, sorry, um, immigrated to the United States uh, from what's now Belarus. And she taught uh, Hebrew eventually at a religious school. Um, and his mom uh, was said, you know, according to, to what we know, to, to have had kind of leftist politics, uh, at least to a degree. Um, I think he describes her as like average uh, Roosevelt Democrat, but uh, somewhat leftist politics that she's shared with her kids. Um, and then his father, whose name is William, uh, was born in Russia and then fled to the United States in 1913, allegedly to avoid being drafted into the Tsarist army. Um, he then worked in sweatshops in Baltimore after he got to the United States. Uh, he eventually managed to work his way through John Hopkins University by supporting himself teaching uh, in Hebrew elementary schools in Baltimore. Uh, he'd eventually become the principal of a religious school in Philadelphia. Actually, it's the same place that Chomsky's mom ended up working as a teacher. Um, so basically two teachers as parents he had. Uh, kind of interesting thing about Chomsky's dad is that while he was 
uh, working in schools, in, in elementary schools, and became a principal and stuff, he was simultaneously pursuing research into medieval Hebrew uh, linguistics or you know language, um, and went went on to become, uh, according to his obituary, like he died in the early 70s or something, uh, his obituary said he was, quote, one of the world's foremost Hebrew grammarians, um, wow. which, is, which is sort of significant when you figure he gave birth to the... Uh, the father of modern linguistics, you know, so. Well, no one wasn't going to let his dad outshine him in the yeah. area of linguistics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, dad. <laughs> Chomsky uh, attended the independent Dwight Oak Lane County, uh, Oak Lane Country Day School and uh, Philadelphia Central High School, where he excelled academically and joined various clubs and societies. Uh, he was a run-of-the-mill nerd, as, as uh-huh. you would say. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, according to... Uh, go it's ahead, kinda, Joe, it's, it's kind of funny, uh, there's the thought of him joining any club or participating <laughs> in any society <laughs> seems totally antithetical to anything uh, Chomsky would, uh, would ever well, do. Well, we never thought we'd see him on Epstein's flight log, so, you know, <laughs> Chomsky's full of surprises. Yeah. Um, but uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, not not his flight log. Sorry, just like he was he he just had like a correspondence with Jeffrey Epstein. Oh no no, he flew with Epstein to go uh, have dinner with Woody Allen. That's that's the. Uh, oh, so he was on the flight log. Yeah, but not shit. not flying out to his private island to have sex with children well hang on uh, what's he doing hanging out out with woody out two uh, two perverts uh, (laughs) instead of one (laughs) this is anyway that's uh i think um, uh i think chomsky described woody allen as like a a great artist or something like that when he was he said it doesn't none of your fucking business uh i i got a got a ride to go have dinner with a great artist or something (laughs) all right but um uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, Noam Chomsky was troubled by uh, the school that he attended because it had a hierarchical and domineering uh, teaching methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also attended Hebrew High School at Gratz College, uh, where his father taught. Chomsky said uh, said that his father's doctoral dissertation about medieval Hebrew grammarians influenced his later thinking on uh, linguistics so there's a direct link there uh, you know i i also uh felt as though my my teachers in elementary school were a little hierarchical and domineering so i think i was <laughs> i'm kind of like a little bit like chomsky you know <laughs> yeah and i also <laughs> developed uh theories about language so i'm like chomsky too oh, okay. <laughs> i got, I got okay. my pet theory i'll you know that's the next episode of club manifesto my my my, my language manifesto yeah. joe a few it's words like... about words by so <laughs> chomsky has described his parents as as you said joe normal roosevelt democrats with center-left politics but he said that some relatives involved in the International Ladies Garment Workers Unions exposed him to socialism and far-left politics, which is where he found his home. He was uh, substantially influenced by his uncle and the Jewish leftists who frequented New York City newspaper stands to debate current affairs. 
Oh, so he went, he got a PhD in the streets as well as in college, you know, uh, um, he's, oh a, yeah, that's, uh, that's what people usually mean when they say they, you know, they studied in the streets as they were hanging out <laughs> in a left-wing bookstore talking to their uncle. <laughs> Chomsky himself often, often visited left-wing and anarchist bookstores when visiting his uncle and uh, he was a voracious uh, reader. He became absorbed in the story of the 1939 fall of Barcelona and the suppression of the Spanish anarcho-syndicalist movement, writing his first article on that topic at the tender age of 10. You know, but when I was 10, Joe, uh, I was busy <laughs> writing about the Iraq war myself. Oh, yeah. For you, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, when, when, you know, what age were you at when you first got around to writing about the Spanish uh, anarcho-syndicalist movement? You know, what that I, take you to, you're probably 13, 14 years old before you got into that shit. Yeah, I didn't know, I don't, I didn't even know that stuff existed uh, until I was like in my 30s. But to be fair, Chomsky was alive during the fucking Spanish Civil War, so yeah. he he has that on us. That's yeah, uh, that's, that's how old yeah, he is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we can. The whole reason that Chomsky's smart is just because he's so old. That's obviously. Uh, yeah, if I got that old, him. I'd be smarter than him. You know, Clearly, so yeah. Uh, so flash forward to uh, from the tender age of ten to uh, basically now, because um, in the current era, of course, uh, Chomsky. <laughs> is a uh, you know he's a professor he's a public intellectual he's known for um political activism and social criticism but also very importantly uh linguistics um he is sometimes called the father of modern linguistics um he's been credited with essentially establishing linguistics as uh formal natural science i mean he is kind of like before and after noam chomsky is is uh is how the the literature in that field is divided to my understanding. Um, he is employed, you know, to the extent that he works at the age of 94 as a professor at university of Arizona and also at MIT still, they always call him like professor emeritus. Um, he's also, you know, besides linguistic, social criticism, political analysis, he's also a major figure in the world of analytic philosophy. Um, one of the founders allegedly of the field of cognitive science um he is you know one of the most cited living authors and uh you know according to wikipedia and i've also seen this said or heard this said elsewhere he's allegedly written more than 150 books um on topics including linguistics war and politics to be honest with you i know he's accomplished my guess is they're counting a few books that are really uh, just uh, transcripts of his speeches when they say that he's written 150 books, but he's written a bunch of shit. He's written a, mm. a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, so Chomsky rose to national attention, uh, really in the mid '60s as an anti-war activist, uh, but really in particular because of this essay that we are going to discuss today, uh, again titled "The Responsibility of Intellectuals." And he became known as an outspoken opponent of, uh, you know, U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. He saw that war as an act of American imperialism. Uh, he's very explicit about that. 
And, you know, Chomsky is old enough. He's been privileged to live long enough to, I think, see himself proven right in a number of instances. And this is certainly one of them. You know, several decades later, it's, uh, you know, with the opportunity to, to look back at the Vietnam War in the larger context of American foreign policy since then, I, I think there's probably a consensus in the United States even that he was right, that um, that this war was really first and foremost an act of imperialism, especially, you know, considering what what has happened since then in in terms of United States involvement in Latin America, in the Middle East, uh, and elsewhere. Um, it's just very... He was right, I think, and um, you know he's he gets to all the he gets all the the riches uh, that that one one acquires <laughs> from being right in some essay you published in 1967. In yeah, the I, I bet he's sitting real pretty because he was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Chomsky became associated with what was called the New Left in the 1960s, and he was arrested multiple times for his activism. During the Vietnam War, Chomsky refused to pay half his taxes. Well, just half. Interesting. I wonder why. Uh, I mean, you know, not paying anything is good, but that's interesting. He he only paid half, I guess. um, I'm sure he had a reason for that. He probably had a manifesto about that to explain why he paid (laughs) half and and didn't withhold the entire amount. Yeah, he liked half the things the U.S. government was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, he publicly supported students who refused the draft and was arrested while participating in an anti-war teach-in outside of the Pentagon. During this time, Chomsky co-founded the anti-war collective Resist with several others, including Dwight MacDonald, whose writings he references uh, in, in the manifesto. Although he questioned the objectives of the 1968 student protests that we talked about in in previous episodes, uh, Chomsky regularly gave lectures to student activist groups. He was eventually placed on President Richard Nixon's secret enemies list. Mm -hmm. Uh, So another uh, uh, point of pride for him, I'm sure. Yeah. It is just funny that there, there is a guy who right now people are asking about, like, Israel-Palestine or uh, Ukraine-Russia, and he was literally on... He's old enough to have been on Nixon's enemies list, Uh, and he wasn't, like, an especially young guy at that time. He was, like, about 40 years old or something, you know? Yeah, and and the 1968 protests that uh, to to fans of Club Manifesto, Joe and I were you know waxing poetic about how amazing a time it was. There, Chomsky was a wet blanket, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cr- criticizing it. Well, you know, this isn't quite right, and yeah. and it turns out he was right about that too. It didn't it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, well, Ch- I mean that Chomsky was you see he's like forty years old right then. He's kind of like a hipster, you know, in the world mm. of uh, American political activism. He was kind of too cool for school. Uh, everybody else was into it, so he he couldn't uh, sign on, which again, you know. Not not really a guy to join a lot of groups, I don't mm. I would not think. Uh, so we'll just talk very briefly about the kind of stuff that he has uh, covered in, in more popular publications. I mentioned earlier, of course, Manufacturing Consent that, uh, you know, I'm sure many, many a club manifesto listener has thumbed through a, 
dog-eared uh, copy <laughs> of uh, manufacturer manufacturing consent. Um, so, but like I said, it was that was a, an especially uh, influential text for me because he outlines this propaganda model for understanding mainstream media um, and explains that, in his view, even in countries that do not have official censorship, uh, there is still this filter that news goes through that influences both what is considered news and then how that news is presented. Uh, Chomsky wrote that with a guy named Edward Herman. Uh, And then... In 89, uh, he published a book called Necessary Illusions, Thought Control in Democratic Societies. And in there, he actually suggested that in a, uh, a, an actually worthwhile democracy, citizens would have to kind of undertake what they termed like intellectual self-defense against the media and against elite intellectual culture um, that was seeking to control them and... I, I've never read uh, Necessary Illusions, but I, it, you know, just reading that summary of that book did kind of, uh, I think, suggest to me the sort of feeling that I had when I was reading his book and then also simultaneously trying to participate in, in whatever way I was in uh, new, news gathering and production. Um, like, there's this feeling like, if you view the the media as functioning largely as this propaganda uh, factory, mm. um, the only way to try to get around that is to, yeah, some type of like intellectual self-defense where you're just constantly viewing everything through the lens of like, is this the, is this the thing that is uh, trying to kind of permeate my, uh, my understanding uh, of a of a subject in order to sway me to believing that the mainstream view is correct, uh, mm. and what's where am I being kind of uh, hoodwinked by some type of uh, propaganda effort? So anyway, um, it's a great, obviously hugely influential, even if um, you know is never cited in the New York Times. Well, I've tried, Lord, and I've tried to stay on top of things. Never dreaming such a storm was on its way. But when you owned up to all those lies, I was the only one there that was surprised. Yesterday's news just hit home today. Yeah, Chomsky is uh, uh, also uh, like a free speech, free speech absolutist. He he is for unconditional freedom of speech, including when it comes to Holocaust denial. Mm-hmm. And that view uh, generated significant controversy in the in the 1980s. Uh, Chomsky also commented on the Cambodian genocide as it was also happening, and those comments uh, also stirred controversy. He yeah. got into. Um, but uh, by the way, not before you go on too too uh-huh. much further. I mean, he 
yeah, he has supported like even Holocaust denial, but he's also, if uh, I don't know if you'll recall, he signed on to that Harper's letter a while ago of of various like intellectuals who were decrying cancel culture. Um, so he was kind of like mm. one of these people on the left who was advocating against uh, some of the the cancellation that was kind of popular on the left. So, I mean, that, and that's controversial as well, I think. Yeah, and um, and about the remarks he made about the Cambodian genocide, this was the, uh, and the Khmer Rouge, uh, this was like a topic of debate between he and uh, Slavoj Žižek, uh, where they, they went back and forth about uh, about that very, uh, those very statements Chomsky made and, and, and why he made them, and, mm-hmm. and how in politics worked, he and, he and uh Zizek had a had a difference of of opinion there. Mm-hmm. Chomsky was uh, vi- widely interviewed after the September 11 attacks in 2001, as the American public attempted to make sense of those attacks. He argued that the ensuing war on terror was not a new development, but a continuation of U.S. foreign policy, and. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, and that was something that could be traced back to the to the Reagan era. That this was not something that that was unique uh, in in U.S. Uh, foreign policy. The the reaction to 9/11. And I think that was also around the time that I became very aware of Chomsky. Uh, the stuff he mm-hmm. said about the Iraq War, and not only the second Iraq War, but the first Iraq War. You know, mm-hmm. the one I wrote on when I was oh, when yeah. I was ten. Yeah, the one you were writing <laughs> treatises on at the age of eight. Tirelessly. Uh, uh, anti war activist. <laughs> yeah. I but, mean um, Yeah, I mean he I think it's it's interesting to think back to like the fact that yeah, he was arguing at that time that the essentially the American response to nine eleven was not really a response to nine eleven. It was just a continuation right. of what was already occurring. And I think if we look at what's going on uh, in Israel with Palestine right now, mm. um, I think, you know, I've not heard him make the, the same uh, type of analysis, but I have a hard time believing that, that he would not view it that way. Uh, and that's that uh, clearly uh, the state of Israel has had a strong interest in uh clearing out the the palestinians uh out of israel altogether um and this is an opportunity to do that uh so in that way it is a continuation of israeli policy um israel being another government that uh, chomsky's been very critical of after i think he actually did spend a little chunk of his early life Mm -hmm. um, living in a in a kibbutz there yeah, he did, and he debated Alan Dershowitz about uh, <laughs> about Israel, uh, where I found out Alan Dershowitz also went to summer camp uh, uh, with Noam Chomsky. Oh shit, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, Noam and Alan Dershowitz and Amy Goodman's dad <laughs> having a great time at oh, yeah. uh, at camp uh, camp. Uh, what's its name? <laughs> mm-hmm. Up there in the forest, mm-hmm. and uh, Chomsky was uh, kind of. You know, he he retired from teaching at MIT in 2002, but he continued and still continues uh, his his uh, uh, his political kind of commentary and activism. 
Uh, he opposed the Iraq war in 2003. He supported the Occupy movement when that happened. Uh, and Chomsky uh, is uh, a continued um, critic uh, of, of U.S. foreign policy in, in Ukraine uh, as that conflict unfolds. And I'm sure we'll hear something from him uh, about, about what's going on in Israel. Uh, he's still alive and still, uh, you know, on his soapbox, <laughs> and 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 you know, and good for him uh, for for doing it. An inspiration to all of us, uh, Grandpa Gnome. <laughs> mm, yeah, this and, this is the the part of the episode where I'll uh, I'll splice in part of that interview with Pierce Morgan, where Pierce Morgan is asking <laughs> Noam Chomsky what what he wants on his tombstone and how he'd sp- how he'd spend the day if he knew. It. <laughs> It was going to be the day before he died or whatever. <laughs> yeah, all the things I'd love to... I mean, I, I would love to know about that, <laughs> what yeah. Noam Chomsky would do. Yeah. Pierce Morgan was asking the right questions, if you, if you ask me. If, you, if, you had, if we knew this was going to be our last day on Earth, I asked Professor Hawking this, actually. I said, how would you spend it? And he said he would get his family together, he would play Wagner very loudly, and he would drink fine champagne. If you knew it was all about to end, how would you spend your last day? I would get my family together, but skip the rest. <laughs> Finally, Noam Chomsky, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to talk to you. So fascinating, I could talk to you for hours. Um, what would you like your legacy to be? If you could write your own heading on your own tombstone, here lies Noam Chomsky, he... What would you like the rest of that sentence to say? He tried his best. Um, so uh, let's this we're, we're in a manif- uh, manifesto podcast. So let's get to the manifesto itself, um, and specifically the kind of context around this manifesto. Uh, it, Chomsky actually discussed it because it was so imp- like kind of uh, remarkable that it generated a 50th anniversary celebration. Uh, so in 2017, there was a thing at, somewhere in Europe, I don't remember exactly where, um, where they celebrated the 50th anniversary of the publication of The Responsibility of Intellectuals. Um, and at that time, Chomsky explained that, quote, the essay itself was really a talk given in early 1966, about a year before it appeared, given to a student group at Harvard University, which then published a student journal. Um so this thing was one of what Chomsky called a constant stream of talks that he was giving related to the Vietnam War, uh, beginning around 1961-1962 as John F. Kennedy began to escalate that war. Uh, so again, he gave this talk in 1966. Somebody wrote it up, or he he I guess wrote it up uh, and turned it into a uh, a. Uh, a thing that could be published in the New York Review of Books, but that didn't happen until 1967. Um, and Chomsky said that the reason that this talk that he gave focused on intellectuals and the relationship of intellectuals with their government is because he was talking at Harvard, and besides the students who were there, there were also going to be Harvard faculty present. And many of those Harvard faculty had prominent roles within the U.S. government. Um, He wrote that 
Quote, the national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, was a former dean at Harvard. (laughs) Many other faculty were either... McGeorge Bundy, what a name. (laughs) Many other faculty, either in the administration or either in the administration or traveled back regularly from Cambridge to Washington. And uh, Chomsky writes, quote, the spirit of Camelot reigned at Harvard, as in fact it still does. So... According to Noam Chomsky, the environment surrounding the Vietnam War protests in Boston at that time was incredibly tense. He described one protest that was scheduled in October 1965, where he was supposed to be one of the speakers, uh, as follows. Quote, The crowd gathered, but the event never really took place. It was broken up violently by counter-demonstrators. You couldn't hear the speakers. Real violence was prevented by a big police appearance. Uh, big police appearance. The demonstrations, not just in Boston, were bitterly condemned by congressional liberals. The demonstrators were regarded as traitors. The Boston Globe, probably the most liberal paper in the country, devoted almost the entire front page to condemning the demonstrators. That was the general mood. End quote. Yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of important to uh, think about how much pressure there was on people not to protest the Vietnam War because so much of our uh, media presentation of the '60s now, like I think there's just this understanding that everyone was protesting all the time. There was this big like revolutionary fervor, and everybody was involved in it, but. Uh, that's, I think, a lot of people thinking about, like, 1968, 1969, 1970. Um, and in the mid-60s, there was still intense pressure to support the U.S. military, uh, full, you know, full-throated support, you know. Yeah, and of course the liberals, uh, were calling people who protested the war traitors because it was Kennedy's war, and Kennedy was Mm -hmm. a Democrat. So it's uh, uh, then as now, the Democrats are the party of war. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's another manifesto. Uh, (laughs) Chomsky refers, um, goes on to refer to something of a sea sea change that occurred um, uh, in... in, uh, in 1966 and especially in 1967 uh, he says quote by late 1967 there was a large-scale popular anti-war movement finally taking shape not too late uh, much too late but quite significantly in scale and with long-term consequences end quote so 65 you know counter demonstrators were attacking anti-Vietnam demonstrators, but by 1967, there was a national movement already afoot. Uh, Chomsky, you know, ahead of the game. Uh, yeah, and this, I mean, obviously, the state was still participating in squashing the protest movement as best it could um, in a number of, uh, with a number of tactics, but it was not uh, the level of, the level of pressure was, uh, I'm sure, lessened by the fact that the support for the anti-war movement was much larger by late 1967. But this was published at a time when it was uh, much more controversial to be saying the things that he uh, says in this in this uh, very anti-war right. essay. 
Yeah, so he was like taking real risks by saying some of these things, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of his peers, uh, a lot of people that he worked with, uh, like that like uh, uh, that McDonald guy, he, um, uh, uh, they were, uh, uh, you know, he had a falling out. He was kind of on the outs uh, uh, with a lot of these uh, mainstream intellectuals, you know, he, um, he saw himself and the stuff that he was doing, not only in contrast to what most intellectuals were doing, but what most intellectuals were doing was safe, uh, uh, wasn't taking any intellectual risks at all. Uh, he was really uh, taking his tenure to the limits of, of, of what they could, of what he could do. So the mm-hmm. context was, um, was uh, uh, a very tense one around the manifesto. Yeah. Um... Yeah, for sure. Joe, you want to read the first lines of the manifesto itself? Uh, yeah, yeah. why not? I'll, I'll read the first, uh, what we're calling the first line. Right. Uh, quote, intellectuals are in a position to expose the lies of government, to analyze actions according to their causes and motives and often hidden intentions, unquote. These are not the actual first lines of Chomsky's manifesto, but rather these lines are from the second paragraph. The reason we read the second paragraph instead of uh, the first kind of captures the challenge we had reading and presenting this essay to you. Anyone who follows Chomsky knows that he backs up, or in this case front loads, every assertion or claim he makes with a large amount of historically specific information. This essay starts with talking about the major actors in the Vietnam War, the historical context in which Chomsky writes this essay. But as no one remembers Storm and Norman from the First Iraq War, no one remembers the people Chomsky's talking about in this essay. I sure as hell uh, do not remember Storm and Norman. <laughs> yeah, Norman Schwarzkopf. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, look him up. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, you're a big Storm and Norman guy. I'm just saying, I... I Quite literally, do not recall Storm and Norman. <laughs> nobody, nobody does. Uh, uh, nobody does. Mm-hmm. While uh, while we will t- talk a good deal about Vietnam, uh, we will also try to focus on the more ahistorical, universal claims Chomsky makes about the responsibility of intellectuals, rather than the historically specific evidence that's in this text. Uh, we're just bringing you the good stuff, folks. Yeah, uh, and also in that good stuff, you know, if if you've ever read anything Chomsky's written, you know that a lot of it is written in what is effectively like a sarcastic tone. I think. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that old Gnome, as uh, the father of modern linguistics, might have <laughs> a uh, more uh, kind of specific description of what he's doing with his language there, um, but. Very often, without acknowledging that he is being facetious, he is he is being facetious, I guess. Um, so I'll do there are a handful of challenges with, with discussing a manifesto mm-hmm. written by Noam Chomsky, the father of fucking modern linguistics, and uh, you know one of them is that he's uh, digging into a lot of very kind of specific stuff about actors who were present during the mid '60s. And another is that uh, very often he says things that he clearly does not literally mean. He means them uh, in a sarcastic way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was a challenge. You're right. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, and it was gonna probably gonna be a challenge here as we try to figure out how to say some of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So we're, we're talking about intellectuals, or Noam Chomsky is talking about intellectuals, and um, I think it might be worth discussing uh, who he thinks are quote intellectuals and maybe who are intellectuals now um he does give kind of a definition that i'll read real quick he says quote for a privileged minority western democracy provides the leisure the facilities and the training to seek the truth lying hidden behind the veil of distortion and misrepresentation ideology and class interest through which the events of current history are presented to us. The responsibilities of intellectuals, then, are much deeper than the responsibility of most other people, given the unique privileges that intellectuals enjoy. Um, So, I mean, he's basically saying that there are, you know, people who are given the time, the ability to seek out truth, uh, to try to expose lies, um... And, you know, I, I think probably at the time he was talking primarily about uh, college professors, mm-hmm. um, you know, people that maybe now we might even call like scholars. Uh, and, you know, I, I think what's a little weird in a way is like that there are people who I think are intellectuals now who are certainly not yes. involved in like universities there are certainly people who, like, by this definition, who they've they've got the leisure, the facilities, the training to seek truth behind the veil of distortion, um, but they don't necessarily like. There there are people in independent media, for example, or or whatever you want to call it, YouTubers even, um, who are who have the time, the ability to do that, uh, and who a lot of people trust uh, for their yeah. And 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 one thing to keep in mind about professors. Uh, and the media in the 60s and 70s, you know, the media went and asked professors what they thought more often, especially professors at Ivy League institutions who had the ear of the president, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, th- these are the um, uh, these are the people that, that Chomsky is thinking about, not your community college English professor, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's people who, who influence power, who power and the media goes to and asks you know what do you think about this and they give them the information they want and chomsky is like well instead of giving them information you should be criticizing the very people that are that are uh, rewarding you you know mm-hmm. yeah and this was a time i guess when there were a lot fewer um i mean i guess you had like william f buckley uh mm. and and other like there were people like prominent People who just kind of, uh, as uh, Bill O'Reilly would say, who uh, bloviators, people who just kind of gave their opinions about shit um, at, based on, you know, theoretically having some kind of uh, view and, and education. But now we are just awash in mm. endless numbers of those people. Um, yeah, pe- so people the- like uh, Ben Shapiro. I think he's a public intellectual now. Uh, oh yeah. Well, Vosh I mean, is a public intellectual. Well, you have. I mean, the the line is especially blurry once you get to old Dennis Prager and his university. <laughs> you mm. know, uh, he's really, you know, he's he's kind of redefining what it means to be an intellectual by uh, 
just turning education into uh, an even more explicitly propagandistic uh, enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, with infographics, the, with infographics. Um, but uh, you know, and then there are pretty much anybody who, I guess, is showing up on cable news is probably like the pundits uh, who appear on cable news. I think in a way are are playing that role. Um, mm. I mean, I think another thing that's going on now is that, you know, Chomsky was writing at a time when most people like read the news uh, in the newspaper, and that's how they got a vast majority of other information. And clearly now, what you do is you, uh, you know, you turn on uh, Patrick Bet David's podcast and listen <laughs> to him talk for three hours with uh, some shithead, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's how you learn what happened. Uh, that's today. that's how I became successful. You yeah, know, listening to PBD. Exactly. Yeah. So Patrick <laughs> Bet David is the the modern intellectual, you know, for for Chomsky. Um, okay. So anyway, just I, I just felt like it might be worth thinking about like who he considers intellectuals because Chomsky, Ooh. as you're going to see here, he's mostly talking about people who could like fairly be described as like historians or. Uh, you know, people who ended up being like advisors to the president because of mm-hmm. their uh, alleged uh, education. Um, but his criticism of intellectuals, like at its most basic, you know, the, the first line that we read was indicating that he's essentially saying that, that intellectuals have a responsibility to expose lies. Is I mean, his key criticism is that they do not do that. They do not pursue the truth. They do not uh, expose lies. These are intellectuals in the United States. Um, and more specifically, he has a problem with the way that intellectuals support the state's propaganda efforts uh, by supporting falsehoods. Um, in this case, he's talking, typically he's talking specifically the falsehoods that backed up the U.S. position regarding Vietnam. Uh, and Toward the beginning of the manifesto, he discusses this, uh, and he uses one of his uh, classic rhetorical flourishes, uh, which is uh, to, to to state that something is either like well established or the record is clear, or <laughs> it's you in know, the public record. It's well known to everyone that blah blah yes. blah. So, so what he writes is, what of the incredible sequence of lies on the part of our government and its spokesmen concerning such matters as negotiations in Vietnam? The facts are known to all who care to know. The press, foreign and domestic, has presented documentation to refute each falsehood as it appears. But the power of the government's propaganda apparatus is such that the citizen who does not undertake a research project on the subject can hardly hope to confront government pronouncements with fact. Uh, In other words, there is such a successful uh, propaganda effort uh, that has engaged these these quote-unquote intellectuals who do not challenge power um that even though both the facts are known to all who care to know it is still uh you know very difficult to uh form an opinion that is not one that's uh heavily influenced by the power structure and that's well that's 
Go ahead. That's why he says that it's a responsibility of intellectuals to do that work for the average man, you know, like and woman. Uh, it's um, because they don't have the time and the resources to undertake research projects. They're too busy doing other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So because the intellectual, as he says early on in the essay, does have the time to do that, it is their responsibility and duty to uh, tell the truth, right? Not mm-hmm. to kiss the ass of power and to repeat what power wants, but to uh, uh, criticize power and to and to be honest about what power and the state, the American state, is doing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, try to imagine if we think of you know modern intellectuals, and certainly we have you know there are like professors who are sometimes interviewed, but if you figure that. A lot of times, the the modern intellectual is like fucking Patrick Bet David or or uh, Jimmy <laughs> Dore or something, or I some mean, business owner. You know, uh, they, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, just, just try to imagine though going to them and saying you have a responsibility, given the fact that basically society has created a lane for you to exist, where you have the time to just uh, research stuff. Uh, think about things, interview people, ask them, learn about the world, and thus you have a responsibility to expose lies and tell what you believe to be the truth as opposed to uh, what we all, I think, take for granted now, which is that, well, if your job is uh, to operate some type of business, uh your job, your job is to make money. So if it, whatever gets clicks, whatever gets mm. ad revenue, you know, I don't, I don't think there's anybody. Not, there aren't very many people who really think that people operating in media now, uh, or in public positions of public intellectual. There are a handful of public intellectuals, I guess, like Chomsky, who have integrity still. But I don't think most people even think they uh, that that your average person talking in public about. Uh, uh, an important subject have any investment really in the truth they're all there to mm. to, to sell uh, a view more or less and and speaking of that truth uh, what does uh, Chomsky mean by that exactly and again the truth is to hold those in power accountable for their actions and, and that's what the intellectual should do uh, he writes or consider National Security Advisor Walt Rostow's views on American policy in Asia. I'm quoting Chomsky here. The basis on which we must build this policy is that, quote, we openly, uh, uh, we are openly threatened and we feel menaced by communist China. So he, Chomsky is quoting Rostow there. Uh, they feel, America feels threatened by China. Uh, Chomsky goes on to say, to prove that we are menaced is, of course, unnecessary, and the matter receives no attention. It is enough that we feel menaced. If America is the policeman of the world, as it was called in the you know 90s and the and the 60s, then like most policemen, it'll shoot if it feels like it's threatened, and mm-hmm. uh, and ask questions later. Chomsky brings up many examples like this in which statesmen like Rostow or Henry Kissinger try to justify America's actions on the grounds of motives, not the actions themselves. So when the U.S. does something really awful, 
uh, people like Rostow or Kissinger say, well, it's what the U.S. meant to do, not what it mm-hmm. actually did that matters. It wants to spread democracy. It doesn't want to, you know, drop napalm on acres of <laughs> jungle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for Con- uh, for Chomsky, uh, those actions are unjustifiable. Who cares what the motives are? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and and. And this is something that comes up again and again in the defense of American foreign policy. Very rarely will you hear people defend America's actual actions. You'll hear the ideals. You know, we went into Iraq and Afghanistan uh, uh, in order to uh, spread uh, democracy or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and, and I think that a lot of people... I mean, I remember growing up and hearing people talking about the Vietnam War, and, and and very, you know, mostly it was described as a mistake. Like, so it was the the understanding was that it was a mistake, meaning uh, the intentions were good, yeah, and that the United States intended good things. It just so happens that they, you know, misunderstood the the power of the Viet Cong and that there were some some missteps here or there mm. but no I mean it, it was I think it is much more difficult to describe it as a uh, kind of murderous like imperial adventure but obviously if it had been uh, the Soviet Union that had uh, invaded a country in Southeast Asia and decimated its population uh dropped you know napalm and and murdered uh, kids and stuff we wouldn't and then they lost we wouldn't be like oh the soviet union made a mistake you know we we would look (laughs) at it and we would try to understand from like an objective point of view as much as that exists like what what was the goal here and we wouldn't think the goal was uh all good shit because they're just you know they're just voluntarily spreading a goodwill across the across the world with their fucking military industrial complex joe uh i recommend you and our listeners go and read my award-winning essay chernobyl was a goof uh <laughs> this is where i defend the intentions of the soviet union yeah <laughs> and we done goofed chernobyl <laughs> and the intentions of the soviet union <laughs> You know they 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 you know they meant well when they weren't uh, main you know maintaining that nuclear facility uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, very well, and and this Walt Rostow character again uh, he was President Lyndon Johnson's national security advisor. Uh, he he wasn't just walking around talking about the motives of America matter just to some guy on the street. Lyndon Johnson explicitly continued uh, the Vietnam War after Kennedy was assassinated. If some other guy was his national security advisor, maybe he would have done differently, you know? Like, he wouldn't mm-hmm. have goofed <laughs> the way he did. <laughs> um, but, uh, so these these nerds, like Rostow, their, their opinions do end up mattering. Well, but also, I, th- I think possibly the Chomskyan uh, analysis might be that... Uh, really Walt Rostow's views do not matter um, mm. and that in fact he was just doing what was required of him 
because he was a quote-unquote intellectual in the position of being a mm. national security advisor. He had to say what he had to say. He was going to whoever else would is it was in that position would have said the same thing more or less because they're all shills for uh, the, the machine. Yeah, a very lawyerly defense. These aren't my views. These are the this is I'm just executing the job of national security advisor. I don't want to bomb the shit out of Indochina or <laughs> Yeah, well well that's sure. Uh, if I was Walt Rostow, RIP by the way. Yeah, Walt Rostow. <laughs> if, if I was Walt Rostow's lawyer, I'd probably say that, but what I'm saying is that I think that's Chomsky's analysis mm. of, and condemnation of people like Walt Rostow who is uh, claims to be like a, an intellectual person with any kind of a fucking integrity, but is clearly just doing what any dumbass would do in that same position, which is like parrot the position of the American military uh, and talk about how they all have good intentions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, so that brings us to everyone's favorite part of Club Manifesto, which is dumbasses. Dumbasses advocate. advocate. Yes. Uh, in this edition of uh, Dumbass's Dumb Advocate, Joe will be advocating for the dumbass Noam Chomsky, uh, while I'll be advocating for the good old U.S. of A., yeah. uh, the American Empire. And uh, essentially the question here, you know, that uh, is, is the importance of motives... Uh, when analyzing American foreign interventions around the world, how how important is are are the motives? And Chomsky, obviously, his position and my position here is going to be that uh, they do not really factor in at all to that analysis. Sos has a different view. Yeah, well, guess what? I'm not about motives either. All right, <laughs> so surprise. That's the first thing. I'm not uh, Will Rostow. Uh, already, uh, uh, Walt, uh, excuse me, Walt Rostow already gave that defense. So, so yeah, you're changing the rules of the game at the beginning. Yes. Uh, we set up uh, a game, <laughs> we set some rules. At the very beginning, you say, oh, I'm just, it's not a three-pointer anymore, it's a ten-pointer. <laughs> I win. I got really good uh, at three-pointers, and I turn, <laughs> it's a ten-pointer now, so fucking I win. <laughs> so, okay, Joe, listen, it's 1967. Things are hairy across the world. The 1968 protests in Europe uh, that we've discussed that we've discussed are just around the corner. The um, the American state is fighting communism at home and abroad. Freedom must be upheld everywhere. America can't let the free market wither and die while state-run enterprises just take over all over the world, all these countries nationalizing their industry, uh, uh, you can't mm -hmm. just let that happen. That's, that's the opposite of freedom. People like Chomsky just don't understand that America is built on private industry. And in order for America to do well, American industry and its interests must do well overseas. So you can't have these nationalizing uh, enterprises. You got to let industry thrive. American industry being the leaders of all industry. Aren't Noam Chomsky's views just a bit too naive uh, in in light of this realpolitik uh, uh, world that we live in? You know. Uh, 
Okay, so wait. I mean, first of all, um, I, I think there's a que- the, there's the question of motives, and then there's the question of is it just okay to do terrible shit because uh, American industry is important? Um, and I, I, I think Chomsky is saying almost kind of what you're saying, which is that that you're what you're espousing there is the view it is what um, the American state is doing. It it is a pretty much acting on that exact rationale it just so happens that what that does is it produces uh horrible you know murder and uh you know desperation around the world when the united states uh takes its its industry and its interests overseas uh but there's also this question of how much does it matter that people say, well, we we actually intend to do uh, something good. And I don't think that Chomsky actually believes that the intentions of the American leaders are noble in any way. I, I think they frank, he, he believes that they are essentially something kind of like what you are espousing there. Um, you know, his view is that uh, American leaders are purposefully actively naive Um, and he writes in this essay that quote we find in recent published statements a real or feigned naivete about American actions that reaches startling proportions for example Arthur Schlesinger according to the New York Times characterized our Vietnamese policies of 1954 as part of our general program of international goodwill Unless, as irony, this mark, this remark shows either a colossal cynicism, I'm sorry, unless intended as irony, this remark shows either a colossal cynicism or the inability on a scale that defies measurement to comprehend elementary phenomena of contemporary history, uh, unquote. So, in other words, uh, you know, I, I don't think Chomsky was confused about whether Henry Kissinger was a cynical sack of shit who didn't believe any of that stuff. I don't think he really thought that Arthur Schlesinger really believed that uh, our Vietnamese policies in 1954 were part of a general program of goodwill. Um, he he believes it's it's cynicism, um, and they don't really believe that they're just put there. It's effectively a lie, which leaves the question of how much weight any intellectual, quote unquote, an intellectual uh, who's performing political analysis, how much weight should they give to these statements by people like Kissinger and Walt Rostow and Arthur Schlesinger? Um, I mean, how much should we care what is in their heart? And I would say not much at all because we're never going to know what's in their heart. The question uh, is essentially how much should we care about what they say is in their heart? Um, and I don't, I don't think much at all. Chomsky gives a, a definition of political analysis uh, that's sort of relevant here. He says, political analysis is, quote, analysis of the actions of governments in terms of motives that are unexpressed in official propaganda and perhaps only dimly perceived by, the, by those whose acts they govern, unquote. In other words, Real political analysis is understanding 
not what is in the official propaganda, meaning not what Henry Kissinger says publicly in the New York Times or Arthur Schlesinger or Walt Rostow, but what they actually are doing, uh, because who gives a shit what they say? They're fucking liars. Um, and Chomsky goes on to say, uh, or write, quote, no one would be disturbed by an analysis of the political behavior of the Russians, French, or Tanzanians questioning their motives and interpreting their actions by the long-range interests concealed behind their official rhetoric, but it's an article of faith that American motives are pure and not subject to analysis. In other words, we should just subject uh, American actions to the same intellectual rigor we would apply to the actions of any other government, uh, and that means not presuming that American motives are good just because uh, some dumbass uh, says it and it's written, you know, it's published as truth in in the New York Times, etc. So that's my that's my retort. Well, uh, uh, for for me, the 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 to defend the U.S. and its and its imperial project, uh, uh, if you're if you think that uh, d- like spreading U.S. industry. U.S. industry does not equal spreading democracy and freedom, then I guess uh, 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 this is like the uh, the difference between uh, uh, Mr. Kissinger and uh, Mr. Rostow and, and, and Noam Chomsky, your, your client there, Joe. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, okay, you know, Henry Kissinger might package... His information with a fib here and a little white lie there uh, about about what America has or has not done, and whether he's cynical or not cynical for having done so. You know, uh, Noam Chomsky defended the Khmer Rouge, I believe. Uh, uh, what were his motives uh, for doing that? I wonder. So it's it's uh, uh, wh- whether whether he's pure of heart, it doesn't matter. As long I I, I kind of agree with you on that. What matters is that he is uh, supporting uh, U.S. business interests overseas, and mm-hmm. that is good for the U.S. And whatever Henry Kissinger has to say to do that, I mean, where do you live, Joe? I live in the U.S., and so do you. What's good for the U.S. is good for uh, everybody. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, whatever Henry Kissinger has to say. To make that reality happen, that's just the way the world works. I'm sorry he's not telling the truth every day and walking around like a choir boy, but uh, uh, but that's that's uh, that's mm-hmm. that's what I'll say in defense of of the American state and Henry Kissinger. Yeah, well, what you would say, yeah, if I was going to um, kind of write a little thesis for you there, it'd be that well, what is good for the United States is good for everyone. Um, which is a, a pretty remarkably convenient um, view for literally any individual or group or country, nation state, whatever that exists. Whatever is good for me and ruthlessly pursuing my own interests is necessarily good for everyone because what a fucking great guy I am. And as long as I'm doing good, it must be good for everyone. Anyway, okay, I think that's... Yeah, now you're getting it. Yeah, I think, I think we've pretty much come to a mutual understanding on yet another brilliant segment of Dumbass's Advocate on Club Manifesto. Uh, 
I think this is kind of a good time to talk about what is one of my favorite uh, passages in this essay. And it's it's kind of, uh, in a way, I guess you could say, uh, Chomsky defending, almost defending himself against any uh, accusation that that his view is, like, just not sophisticated enough. You know, like, you're, you as the, uh, I guess you were actually not the dumbass, you were the, uh, the anti-dumbass. Um, was 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 effectively suggesting that like Chomsky's just like not sufficiently sophisticated and is too interested in like principles and morals, you know, mm-hmm. which is I guess like a simpleton's way of looking at the world. Um, so at one point in this manifesto, he writes uh, he writes this quote: "Anyone can be a moral." This is sarcastic, by the way. This is, a, this is that part that's it's difficult uh, almost to capture uh, to reading it, but. He writes, quote, anyone can be a moral individual concerned with human rights and problems, but only a college professor, a trained expert, can solve technical problems by sophisticated methods. Ergo, it's only problems of the latter sort that are important or real. Responsible, non-ideological experts will give advice on tactical questions, but irresponsible, ideological types will harangue about principle and trouble themselves over moral issues and human rights or over the traditional problems of man and society concerning which social and behavioral science has nothing to do, nothing to offer beyond trivialities. Obviously, these emotional ideological types are irrational, since being well off and having power in their grasp, they shouldn't worry about such matters, unquote. Um, mm. I just think that's like such a uh, good dist. I mean, it's this is 1967, but it's such like a great distillation of this thing that I feel like I've seen happen more as I've gotten uh, older. Really, which is that like when you're when you're younger, I feel like people are almost more like uh, comfortable talking about uh, issues in in moral terms and in terms of their. Uh, their principles but as you get older it's so much more comfortable to discuss like strategy and uh what's the you know what's the best route for it's like you treat everything like a fucking baseball game you know or uh Mm. you know everything so like being sophisticated uh means essentially scrubbing any real humanity from your analysis and, and looking at everything like uh uh, computer. Well, what it also means is that, you know, if you're being sophisticated, what you're doing is you're figuring out the rules of the game, of the system as it exists, and trying to maneuver within them uh, uh, to the best of your ability. 
and your and your ability to like maneuver around the current existing system is seen as sophisticated and practical. But mm-hmm. what Chomsky is doing is saying that whole system is bullshit. The thing that you're spending so much time being good at maneuvering, that whole thing is a fucking waste of time. And with uh, uh, the the kind of intellectuals that he's talking about, they're st- they're too invested in all the time and effort they spent in figuring out people like the Walt Rostows of the world have figured out the system well enough to become national security advisor and work at an Ivy League. That's not like easy to do, but he's done it. And uh, but Chomsky's looking at those efforts and being like, you've you've wasted your time because you've figured out how to work within the system instead of criticizing the system. And uh, and whoever criticizes the system is considered a ideological type, as you as as as, as you just said. Yeah, I mean that uh, you're effectively you're effectively playing at that point the the intellectual the successful intellectual is like playing the same role as a as a professional baseball player or, or any kind of professional sports athlete, um, in that like. You get really an athlete gets very good at their at their sport, and they get so good that eventually they're able to win, like get a win for like uh, the fucking New York Jets or like Chicago White Sox or whatever. And then the end of that is the White Sox win instead of uh, whatever other <laughs> fucking team. It does. There's literally. Nothing fucking matters about it. Who gives a <laughs> shit? It's like totally meaningless. Uh, but it is like you know, it's a way that people can can watch the kind of expert, sophisticated uh, abilities of certain like professional athletes. Just like uh, you can watch uh, James Carvel on uh, CNN talk about his sophisticated. I mean. That's being generous. The guy but, who was wrong about every fucking election. Yeah, that's, this <laughs> is a bad. This is a bad example. But people go to him as though he is very <laughs> yeah, sophisticated. because he because you know? he won one election with Bill Clinton, and yeah. then he was considered like a a tactician because all he did was like sell out to the Republicans. That was his grand strategy: do what Republicans do. Yeah, uh, 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 great job, fucking. Anyway, sorry. Yes, but the, I mean the point is. Okay, so he wins, but at, for what? Who gives a shit? Like he's just—he's just a right. guy. It, he's like a, a, a basically a, a coach for a professional team or something. Well, it's, I think uh, I, I think Bill Clinton and James Carville is a great example. They won, but what did they do? They enacted the Republican agenda at that time. Mm-hmm. So, what does winning mean? Even okay, they were such great strategists. They were so clever. They were one of these like uh, uh, intellectuals who was able to like get uh, figure out the system and succeed within it. Well, how do they succeed within it? They became more right wing as a democratic party. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that a good win? And now we're living in the wake of that shit. Yeah. So uh, not all winning is equal uh, uh, in that way. Well, the, I think the only way that one justifies that type of quote unquote winning is the the only logic I can think of that that supports it is that the other side is so terrible that it's necessary for this team to win, you know? Like, I guess in this case, like the, you know... Right. It it, it just makes... that That's the only... And that's obviously... That's still the logic that's applied all the time. But otherwise, why else would it matter 
If the Democrats win, and, if they're also right wing. And it's so, by definition, short-sighted. All you give a fuck about is the next win uh, instead of the big picture, right? That, that's exactly what the mm-hmm. Democrats did in the 90s. They, they went more towards the right uh, uh, because it was more practical to winning elections, and they succeeded for a short time. But then, guess what? Nothing stays the same. The right goes even... The conservatives go even further right than you uh, to the point now where it's almost like explicit... Uh, white nationalism, like barely mm-hmm. coded white nationalism. It's just, uh, 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 so what will Democrats become? Just coded white nationalism as opposed to uncoded <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, white na- I mean, where the fuck does it end? It's it's like, so it's a short-term strategy, but the, oh, in the big picture, though, you're, 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 you're just veering more towards... The right. Uh, uh, that's all that that's that has been happening. It will happen with that kind of with that kind of prag- pragmatic, practical strategy in mind. You'll just become your opponent eventually. Well, and I think the the key maybe for understanding it is that it's not pragmatic. Actually, if you care about yeah, the actual it, policies that are implemented, it's yes. only pragmatic if you have an investment. In the Democratic Party winning because you just have like an investment in that team winning, but it's not it's not pragmatic in terms of in anything terms of good policy. happening for people. Yeah. Um, but I do want to get to like this, you know, in terms of the intentions of, of anyone really involved in mm. American politics, because Chomsky does talk about this a lot. You know, regardless of whether you're you have good intentions uh, when it comes to uh, being a tactician or strategist um, instead of a person who acts uh, out of some type of uh, moral uh, or principled understanding. Um, he, Chomsky's view is basically that the, the actions of the American state, like the, the United States, um, like the stakes are just like too high to really justify considering anybody's intentions. Um, at least that's mm. the way that I, I read this. He writes, quote, American aggressiveness... However, it may be masked in pious rhetoric is a dominant force in world affairs and must be analyzed in terms of its causes and motives. There is no body of theory or significant body of relevant information beyond the comprehension of the layman, which makes policy immune from criticism. So to the extent that, quote, expert knowledge is applied to world affairs, it's surely appropriate for a person of any integrity, it's quite necessary, to question its quality and the goals it serves. These facts seem too obvious to require extended discussion. Um, in other words, you know, the United, I mean, the United States is still obviously a, a hugely dominant force in the world, although I think arguably maybe it had more influence in the 1967. Um, but it's just really too important uh, to, to not apply an actual like relevant like reasonable analysis to what's going on you have like it's just it's not like a a couple of kids at the on the playground you know and one of them intends to not uh Mm. knock the other one off the monkey bars it's like it's more important than that and and even the intentions, like uh, sometimes uh, these these people uh, that Chomsky is criticizing, let their intentions uh, slip. 
like um, like one of these intellectuals uh, said, quote, that the United States should buy all the surplus Canadian and Australian wheat so that there will be mass starvation in China. In, uh, uh, and these are his words, uh, quoted by Chomsky. Mind you, I'm not talking about this as a weapon against the Chinese people. It will be. But that is only incidental. The weapon will be a weapon against the government because the internal stability of that country cannot be sustained by an unfriendly government in the face of general starvation. So it's like ends justify the means. You know, the intention is to bring down the Chinese government. The Starving the Chinese people is not the intention. That's just incidental, you yeah. know. Um, so there's two things about, about, about this quote. Uh, that first, it's uh, uh, you know the it's it's very cruel, and mm -hmm. also it shows that the uh, th U.S. thinking about U.S. foreign policy. Uh, it, I mean, what Chomsky is describing here are sanctions before they were called sanctions. You know, mm -hmm. to uh, to economically punish a country. Uh, in order to get a certain political result. That's been U.S. foreign policy, right? Buy all the wheat from China, people starve, so they rise up and overthrow their government, right? Yeah. And, well, what government will they replace that government with? Hopefully one that's pro-U.S., you know? Yeah. Pro-U.S. industry. So uh, this is like the logic behind sanctions. I don't think sanctions have ever worked uh, anywhere the way the U.S. intends it. Yeah, I think lo but logic is almost like a strong term for it because it's it, that suggests that any of the premises have have any integrity almost, you know. And like, yeah, if the premise is that uh, keeping people from being able to access clean water is going to cause them to have the wherewithal to overthrow their government turns out uh you know as best i'm i'm aware that's that's really not uh typically uh successful. yeah it's like it's like these people think that every other country will be like america it'll create like little american revolutions everywhere that if their government becomes intolerable they'll just rebel against it the way america did maybe this is at the root of this kind of thinking i don't know what the fuck they're thinking because there's been lots of sanctions uh been placed on lots of countries including russia and none of them have worked it's just it hurts people and that's all it does the governments that uh that are in power stay in power uh, they don't get overthrown the policies of those countries don't become more pro united states in fact the u.s empire is now uh, uh sort of losing its strength so the truth is that sanctions never worked. Uh, they just inflict suffering on innocent populations. American sanctions uh, uh, are in effect right now in 38 different countries. So there's 38 countries America's fucking around with uh, in terms of their economy and their internal politics. Countries like Yemen, Venezuela, Zimbabwe. Are any of these countries overthrowing their governments? The U.S. has tried to have Venezuela overthrow its government for since the early 2000s in Hugo Chavez. It's been 20-some-odd years and it hasn't fucking worked. Like, this shit just does not work, even on the U.S.'s own terms. Yeah, even, yeah, even if you're purely looking at this, like, a, again, like you're playing, like, a team sport or something. Yes. And you, I mean, if you care about the obviously uh, horrific 
intention of the United States to overthrow the Chavez regime in uh, Venezuela. Yeah, it didn't work. It's not working to overthrow Maduro. I mean, what it's worked to do is create what is uh, about to be, I guess, uh, within about a mile of where I'm at, about to be a, a fucking tent city uh, that the United States or that the mm. city of Chicago is going to erect to house the flood of Venezuelan migrants, quote unquote, who are coming to this uh, city and it's about to get really fucking cold outside. So they're like they're erecting a tent city to keep all those people there because we destroyed their fucking economy by placing by i mean between us and all the countries who are influenced by our uh, our monetary policy and our our policy regarding uh sanctions uh we destroyed their their economy and now they are uh have no choice but to take life-threatening trips uh through central and south or central america and mexico uh to get here it's it's uh, horrific. And just as Chomsky uh, describes sanctions without calling them sh- sanctions in that essay, he nicely summarizes neoliberalism without calling it neoliberalism. That, that term wasn't in use then. He says, quote, Intellectuals in the West have lost interest in converting ideas into social levers for the radical transformation of society. Now that we have achieved the pluralistic society of the welfare state, they see no further need for a radical transformation of society. We may tinker with our way of life here and there, but it would be wrong to try to modify it in any significant way. With this consensus of intellectuals, ideology is dead. It's kind of incredible he's writing this in 1967. I mean, this is shit that, like... Uh, uh, Zizek was writing his whole like career is made on this mm-hmm. like criticizing this idea and the stuff that he wrote in the late 80s early 90s and Chomsky is already doing it in 67 that's why this G- is, that's why Zizek has so much uh, you know so many problems with, Chom- with, with Chom- Chomsky, Chomsky how, yeah. has so many problems with Zizek I guess yeah they're they're both the same guy it turns out mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this they, is such a timely quote I I feel the Soviet Union was still going strong, more or less, in 1967. For someone to write "ideology is dead" in 1967 is pretty Mm -hmm. bizarre, you know. And and, but not bizarre. Again, Chomsky was right. Uh, Zizek wrote uh, his big book in the late 80s, "The Sublime Object of Ideology," in the late 80s when the Soviet Union was falling apart. So to to and to critique like the death of ideology. And Francis Fukuyama's, you know, uh, celebration of the victory of of capitalism, uh, that's easier to see and do in the late 80s than it is in 1967, when the mm-hmm. Soviet Union... I, I think it's kind of amazing that, that he, he made that observation. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so there's he sees that there's Chomsky is saying that there's only one dominant system, uh, even though the Soviet Union was around, uh, the Amer- America had pretty much already won. It's one, uh, and and it's one that will last forever uh, uh, because it's so good. Uh, we don't need political ideology anymore. Uh, capitalism is the only game in town, so that means there is no other 
uh, system. There is no alternative, as as Margaret Thatcher put it. Mm-hmm. And um, and 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 this was in this kind of view. Uh, again, Chomsky had it in 1967. That's kind of amazing to me. Yeah, I, I mean it is. I think the other thing that's amazing is thinking about his framing here, and he's talking about, of course, the the way that uh, that like the great society and you know fdr's uh, sort of contributions via like social security etc that those were creating a welfare state that essentially ameliorated uh problems sufficient to kind of make a lot of people certainly most like quote-unquote intellectuals believe that uh, we really no longer needed a uh, any type type of revolution. We did not need a radical transformation in any way. Um, to to think about how he's describing that in 1967, and think about how in like 2016 and 2020, people were base galvanized so much by just like Bernie Sanders saying, "Hey, let's go back to like trying to do some shit sort of like what they did in the in the <laughs> in the FDR uh in mm. the great society. Like maybe let's just get a little bit more of that uh, to sort of like uh make us all feel a little bit better about this uh pile of shit that we've created yeah. and called a society. Um, let's have a government that helps you instead of punishes you. And you even know? even that was like, oh no. Come on, <laughs> that's 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 unrealistic. We gotta we gotta put uh, you know Joe Biden's coming in to to put that all to bed. Um, you don't mm. even get that, you know. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable, I guess that mm. that's like that's the way that our uh, the system has moved. And and now we go into our Biden is worse than Trump segment <laughs> of the of the podcast. Yeah. Now we go into our you've got to withhold your vote from Joe Biden (laughs) segment of the podcast. What do you expect if you don't withhold your vote? Worse than Trump. Worse than fucking Trump. It's worse. Worse than Trump. Anyway. Okay. Um, in another... No, I mean, uh, Joe Biden sucks. I don't mean to minimize that point. Uh, uh, this is not a, no, a, a yeah, defense. Yes. A tacit defense of Joe you Biden. You know, it, it it depends on the day of the... Well, no, Trump is worse. Trump is worse than, than Biden, but uh, not by, not by a, a whole hell of a lot. Um, okay, so uh, that's really apropos of nothing. Um, let's get back to the manifesto where Chomsky, um, at this point, like there... He, he is doing a lot of just, like, analyzing what's going on in Vietnam. Um, but, you know, again, uh, dude is uh, pretty prescient. And he... May, maybe this wasn't that much of an intellectual feat, but he does effectively predict the conflicts that later occurred after this was written. You know, the conflicts that... You know, the recent ones, at least, like in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria... Um, as well as you know many others that occurred throughout the the 80s and 90s um, uh, he writes at a certain point in this uh, manifesto about a particular a particular intellectual who um, who basically professed to believe that Vietnamese people wanted a capitalist society um, because 
they had purchased American consumer goods when they were given American aid. Um, like basically, money was was like kind of uh, given to the like a, some some power brokers in Vietnam during the war, and a lot of that money was spent on effectively consumer goods. Um, I mean, not as though the average Vietnamese citizen was probably having any role in deciding uh, what was going to be like imported into the country to be marketed to them, but this uh, this person, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't actually have the, the person's name here, but they, the, one of these intellectuals had essentially assumed, uh, you know, that uh, basically, if only like the benevolent Americans would just liberate all third world citizens, um, that those citizens were clearly going to celebrate, they were going to have access to a Buicks and Big Macs. Um, but so that's the, the, the sort of attitude, uh, kind of clearly, uh, let's say problematic attitude that Chomsky is referring to in this next quote, um, where he says, quote, in no small measure, it's attitudes like this that lie behind the butchery in Vietnam and we'd better face up to them with candor or we will find our government leading us towards a final solution in Vietnam and in the many Vietnams that inevitably lie ahead. Um, and he was obviously, well, for one thing, we obviously did not face up to it with candor. <laughs> um, mm. And uh, we have obviously been led into many Vietnams, you know, the, the most obvious recently being uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, but I think there are many others that... Uh, you could argue at least uh, are similar, if not maybe similar in scale. Um, and he was able to see that. I think, again, maybe that wasn't really an especially impressive intellectual feat, given what the United States uh, was up to at that point. But uh, I thought it was, uh, I still thought it was uh, worth noting in a way. Well, uh, what th that reminds me of that famous quote, like to, 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 to say that Chomsky is uh, talking about, uh, you know, the final solution and genocide in Vietnam is kind of maybe blowing things out of proportion. Uh, I just want to uh, remind listeners of the, of the famous quote uh, that a soldier testified uh, to during, uh, uh, in 1968 regarding the uh, uh, My Lai uh, massacre. He said it became necessary to destroy the village in order to save it. Mm -hmm. Right. That was like the li literal thinking of the U.S. government and how it shot, how it saw that village. We have to kill everyone in it in order to liberate it because everyone in it supports the Viet Cong. Yeah. So let's kill. We have to kill the country to save it. So mm -hmm. that I I don't think Chomsky was uh, blowing things out of proportion by thinking of of genocide uh, uh when he when he said that no i think i mean and and he was writing around the time that there was a lot of news about these atrocities i mean i, I don't actually know exactly when the milai massacre was exposed when it happened when it was exposed but um there were clearly a lot of uh, major mm major news events like that and uh you know much like right now there is a lot of discussion about the, you know the actions of the israeli government sure looks yes. a lot like genocide 
um, yeah. in in uh, the Gaza Strip, and uh, I'm sure that that had to have been what it looked like in Vietnam when we were uh, mm-hmm. carpet bombing and uh, and committing massacres over there. And and just like with Vietnam, the the U.S. is 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 protecting those actions, you know, yeah. and saying. Um, uh, instead of uh, criticizing them, uh, the U.S. isn't perpetrating them this time around, but it is uh, providing aid for them and putting a a, a big uh, uh, nuclear, uh, not a a big aircraft carrier. Sorry, I was going to say nuclear submarine, but aircraft carrier just off the coast of uh, of Israel as a sign of support. Well, but I read today. Oh, go ahead. Well, I just and and there. I mean, in terms of this, the relevance of this manifesto, there are countless quote-unquote intellectuals including the old alan dershowitz um, (laughs) who are providing uh propagandistic support for what is essentially mass murder and uh whether or not it's an attempted genocide i guess is probably uh not even really worth delving into but it, it's uh, yeah. well i think the the you know it's uh the, the genocides happen at different speeds i think what's happening to the palestinians is a slow motion genocide they're you know kind of like what happened to the native americans in the u.s there's mm-hmm. fighting that erupts every now and again but the you know the long it's a long slow uh, eradication not a quick uh, fast uh, eradication of a group of people, but you know uh, what do I know? I, I may be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it seems as though I mean we're really getting into dark territory at the end of the podcast, but it it seems as though at, at present um, that it's speeding up, um, that it it went yes. from a slow motion yes. genocide to uh, uh, again. This is I think that what Chomsky said about the war on terror in the United States. And how is really just an extension of American policy? Um, it seems like we're looking at an extension of Israeli policy in a way of just ramping up what it's been doing uh, for for many years. Uh, but, Absolutely. Uh, anyway. But um, one last thing about this manifesto: uh, when Chomsky was writing this manifesto, he was one of a handful of intellectuals who spoke publicly and critically of the Vietnam War. Most professors and public intellectuals, like William F. Buckley, were pro-war. Much like uh, many intellectuals now are pro-war, as uh, you know, uh, as, as, as we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Which war? Any war. Take your pick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Uh, you know, there'll, there'll be plenty of uh, intellectuals being pro-war, no matter which war you pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it in, our, in our case today, is it Israel's war on the Palestinians? Is it the Ukraine war? Uh, take your pick. You'll find mm-hmm. people defending these wars to, to no end. Um, Chomsky says, quote, The backwards countries have incredible, perhaps insurmountable problems. Again, he's being sarcastic here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the only ways like a, a, a monotone, uh, a dorky guy like Chomsky can manifest his frustrations as passive aggressively mm-hmm. through through irony. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 we we've not really kind of commented on this that much, but obviously the dude is like a remarkable writer. What you would expect yeah. for somebody who is uh, you know kind of a genius in terms of linguistics, but uh, he makes a point in a way that uh, is very uniquely uh, Chomsky. 
It really is. I, 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 and I didn't, I always like, I guess I noticed it in, uh, uh, but it's, I never noticed it until I had to talk about stuff that he said and, and, and his like snarkiness really, uh, shines mm -hmm. through because it becomes a kind of impediment. Um, but <laughs> he said, uh, the backward countries have incredible, perhaps insurmountable problems and few available options. The United States has a wide range of options and has the economic and technological resources, though evidently neither the intellectual nor moral resources to confront at least some of these problems. It is easy for an American intellectual to deliver homilies on the virtues of freedom and liberty. And, um, that those last two sentences, those last few sentences are just as true today as they were in, in, in 1967. America has all of the resources but the intellectual and moral ones to try to alleviate these problems that itself is causing. And if, you know, if it did have the resources, uh, I guess the way, the way in which those resources might manifest would be that you would have a a very vibrant community of intellectuals who would be challenging uh, what the United States was doing, uh, presuming it was doing, uh, you know, things that are not justifiable. Um, and, but, but it doesn't, uh, it has, you know, what he calls economic and technological resources, like basically this, this shit that kind of like uh, encourages a kind of like quote unquote pragmatic, strategic approach but it doesn't have intellectual or moral resources um mm. and thus we we defer to turning everything into a fucking fantasy football game yes and uh you know uh, all that matters is that we're winning joe but it, it doesn't even seem that we're winning yeah you, and, you don't even uh, don't you feel like you're winning aren't you uh, oh i do <laughs> we're, we're, come on you. we're winning you know <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, Noam Chomsky wanting to, you know, uh, change the world, uh, but for the better, but like all of our manifesto writers, uh, you know, it's, a except for, uh, William, uh, hang on, was it William Powell? What was Powell's first Lewis, name? Lewis, Lewis Powell. Lewis, okay, Lewis Powell and, and Eli Brode, uh, those have been the two successful manifesto writers we've had, mm -hmm. you know, none of the other manifesto writers' visions are coming into fruition. Maybe Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't know, <laughs> not Dahmer, sorry, um, not Jeffrey Dahmer, Kaczynski? god damn it. Not cause, well, he was mildly successful, but no, the, um, oh, the guy who killed cops. Dorner, Christopher Dorner. Dorner, there we go. Yeah, not Dahmer, Dorner. Yeah, R.I.P. Chris Dorner, R.I.P. Um, Along with Walt Rostow. Uh, yeah, Walt Rostow, <laughs> R.I.P. I, I will say uh, I, I had not anticipated this, but I feel like at the end of this uh, discussion of the Chomsky Manifesto, I'm feeling like kind of uh, bummed, you know, which is exactly what mm. you would expect after talking about Noam Chomsky and his worldview for such a long time, which really makes yeah. it it makes it kind of remarkable. That the guy obviously has such like he has such like a life force, you know. He's like ninety-four. Yeah. Like he just keeps going, and he keeps going, and he keeps espousing a view that is uh, a little 
you know, it's a little dark. I think it's it's totally very. Ac- I think it's very accurate, but it's very dark. It's dark. It's it's depressing. Uh, uh, I mean, and he's been t- saying basically the same shit since he was ten years old, writing about the Spanish <laughs> Civil War. Yeah. Not much has changed. In yeah. uh, at the core uh, of of Noam Chomsky, uh, it's, yeah. Um, Noam's man. Noam just keeps noming, you know, just keeps uh, <laughs> noming along. Yeah, and 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 I guess we we should uh, gnome along uh, as well. Yeah, uh, and the li- in listeners, the you can keep noming along too. Just keep uh, <laughs> just keep noming, um, and uh, you know, just keep. Uh, sending us emails too if you feel like it go ahead and uh, contact us at our uh, email address clubmanifesto420 at gmail.com that's clubmanifesto420 at gmail.com in case you have any questions comments, thoughts, uh, critiques anything that's on your mind um, we love to hear all one word, no spaces it's all one word, everything that we've said for the last two hours is all one word no spaces Um, (laughs) alright, have a good one alright, take care